0: We're working through the story of Mark. It's the story of Jesus' life. And this is the, the point that we've got to. Let me pray and then we'll read, read that text. Lord, we, we are people who, who were, maybe some are lost without you in the darkness, not being able to see the way forward. And we need the light of your words, the light of your spirit to shine into our hearts, to reveal your truth to us, to show us who you are, Lord, so that Christ would be all that we have, all that we proclaim, that he would be all to us. All of us need to to grow in that. In some way this morning, Lord, you know how we need to grow by your spirit. We invite you to work in us and through us we pray. Amen. So Mark chapter 14, page 1019. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar. And poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. You know, as people, what we love pours out of us in how we live our lives. So I've been to, uh, to see the Villa play a few times, um, uh, but uh, I'm a Spurs fan. So I went to see the Villa and I went to see Spurs playing um, away from home, but I was in the home end. So there I am, surrounded by all these faithful Villa diehard fans, and I'm watching Spurs. And I'm kind of sitting on my hand, trying not to jump up when they score and shout out, because you know you do that, and suddenly you've got like thousands of people on you. Um, this isn't a picture of me, but this is a similar thing. Can you see this guy here uh, in the the maroon kit with all of these blue? You know, one fan amongst all the others. There he is. He's loud and proud. I wasn't quite that brave. A philosopher called James Smith says this, he says, our wants and our longings and desires are at the core of our identity, the wellspring from which our actions and behaviour flow. Our wants reverberate from our hearts, the epicentre of the human person. So if you want to see what someone really loves, what they really love, then ask them what they love, look at how they spend their time. Look at their online bank account, where their money's going. Look at, look at who they spend their time with. Look at what gets them excited when they get really down and depressed, what's going on. That's how you know what people really love. You know, following Jesus and knowing Jesus is this. It is a reordering of our loves. It is our hearts getting everything in the right place, everything in the right order as God has made the world and intended it to be. That is what following Jesus is about. Now that is a lifetime work. Every one of us is in the middle of that experience in some way. Our hearts being reordered to having the right loves. What this text that we've just read is going to do is it's going to, it's going to go to work on our hearts if we will let it. You can close down and you can stop it from going to work on your heart. But if you'll let it, it will go to work on your hearts and it will shape and reshape your loves. I think this is, this is a helpful question just for you to pause on in your own mind at the moment before we uh, kind of really get into this. What is your heart attitude to Jesus? Even now as you sit there, what is your, what is your heart response to him? And it could be burning hot with love and just overflowing with joy. You just can't keep it in. Or maybe you could be full of hostility and hatred. Or maybe you could just be apathetic and indifferent and weary or moderate or cool. Or maybe you feel cool but you want your heart to be warmer. I, I, I don't know. Think for a moment. What is the attitude of your heart before Jesus? See, what, what we have in this story that Mark writes down, he tell, he's a brilliant storyteller, Mark. And, and he tells uh, this story that gives us window, like a window into the souls of the people in the story through what they say and do. So he doesn't tell us what people love or what their heart attitude to Jesus is. But, but he shows us, and the way he shows it, it's like this kind of maverick film director who cuts these scenes together. And, and the way that the scenes go together just kind of make the point. And so here we have this, this scene of loving devotion being poured out. And what does it sit between? This kind of this cold-blooded, angry, murderous scheming. And then afterwards, this brutal betrayal. It's kind of like this rose-between-two-thorns scenario. And all of this is happening in, in Jerusalem, in Israel, 2,000 years ago. And it's at festival time in the capital city. So, so Jerusalem it is bustling and busy and vibrant. It's, it's a city at that time, about 120,000 population. But at festival time, it's over 400,000. It's kind of quadrupled. It's, it's swelling. And it's the Jewish Passover festival and, and the unleavened bread, Mark tells us. It's this long, um, this, this festival has been celebrated for a long time, 1,500 years, where, where the Jewish people celebrate God's rescue of them from slavery in Egypt under Moses' And we read uh, in verse 1, as we, as we started our reading, that we're in the middle of this festival. It's, it's probably Wednesday. According to the Jewish timekeeping, it's the day before Passover. And so therefore, Mark's story, those of you who have been with us since September, is, is we're now kind of in the final bit of Mark's story. It's where we've been building to. We're now into the, to, to the passion and the suffering and, and soon coming the death of Jesus. This is where Mark has been heading. We've been heading to Jerusalem, haven't we? And we're right now here. And it turns out that these events are very central to what we love as well. We see that as the story unfolds. Listen, uh, we're going to see four different heart attitudes to Jesus. We're going to see um, hostile hearts, hardened hearts, half-hearted hearts, and hot hearts. I'm, I'm sorry. You can see what I've done. Um, I try not to do that, but sometimes I can't help myself. Four types of heart. We'll, we'll see them as we go through. And what these what, what these characters are going to do, they're going to help us to honestly self-assess. Honestly, think about our heart. And, and honestly, uh, consider how our heart might be shaped by them. So firstly, we see um, hostile hearts. And although it's fe- festival time, and everyone's happy and celebrating and, it, and it's busy, we read that the chief priests and the teachers of the law are scheming in verses 1 and 2. That they want to arrest Jesus on the choir and they want to kill him. That is their plan. And actually, we've seen that they've wanted to kill Jesus for ages. It was all the way back in chapter 3 and verse 6 when we first saw about it. And it's kind of been simmering in the background of the story for a long time. That they began the plot back in chapter 3 when Jesus uh, uh, said that he could, um, no, when he healed a man on the Sabbath. And we read that they first then started to plot how they might kill him. They hadn't liked Jesus from the very moment they heard him claim to forgive sins. They were after him. They didn't like what he does, they didn't like what he says. And here we have their desire, their hostile hearts flowering into full bloom, if you like, with their plan to kill a plan to murder. The wheels in motion. They sense that their moment is here. We're going to get rid of this Jesus problem. It's going to be so- sorted. You know, by the end of this week, they had succeeded. We read here they're going to wait until after the festival, but they don't even do that in the end. They get the crowds whipped up, and, uh, and they manage to get everyone whipped up into a murderous frenzy. And on Good Friday, of course, Jesus is killed at the height of the festival. now you might say well come on nobody today is actively planning an assassination of jesus i mean he's not physically here to do that so how, how could this how could i see myself here well you know what many are filled with such hate for jesus such hate for him and for his church that they attack I and mean, when we see it in, in in our media we see it in academia and kind of the intellectual spheres of our culture and society, these new atheists who have made it their aim to take down Jesus' claims and destroy his followers in the church. The, that is still going on. People are hostile to Jesus in their hearts. I guess, perhaps, by very v- virtue of the fact that people are here at church today, that's maybe not where, where you're at. It's unlikely to be you. And yet I wonder if you may effectively kill Jesus over and over in your life. I wonder if maybe some people here are sitting today with a hostile heart to Jesus and his ways. No place for him actually to rule your life or to call the shots or to actually be the king of your life. You keep him and his words at arm's length at a comfortable distance. You can come that far, Jesus, but no further. You play pick and mix listening to the nice stuff he says about love and about coming to save and whatever else. But ignoring what he says about things like sexual ethics, or or self denial, or, or generosity, or, or gentleness and patience and endurance and self control. It is possible behind respectability, these guys were very respectable, to have a heart that is very hostile to Jesus. Secondly, we see the uh, hardened hearts. And you need to think over, because this is kind of at the end of the reading, in verses 10 to 11, this is Judas. We all know about Judas, don't we? Who Mark focuses on at the end here. Judas, one of Jesus' closest friends. He spent pretty much three years with Jesus, kind of night and day, in his pocket as one of his friends. They've been through thick and thin together. Judas has seen miracle after miracle. He's eaten food that Jesus has miraculously provided for him. He's heard sermon after sermon. He sang song after song with Jesus. He's prayed prayer after prayer with him. They've laughed and they've cried. They've traveled. They've been through it all together. And yet here, Judas hears of this scheme to kill Jesus' friends. And he spots the chance to turn a quick dollar. And he's going to sell his friend out. He's going to sell them out to those angry and violent opponents. This is the betrayal of an insider. This is someone who is so close to Jesus. And you know what's happened, though? He's hardened his heart over and over again. He's hardened his heart to Jesus. This kind of terrifying, slow, and subtle betrayal. But now, at this point, his heart is absolutely stone cold. His sensitivity is seared. And now here he is, Jesus' friend, and he's planning hate and murder. Actually, he's left here watching for his opportunity to hand him over. That's this kind of this hostile and horrible act to hand him over to these forces that will come against him. What a terrible place for a supposed friend of Jesus to end up. A hardened heart. This is a warning. You can be so close to Jesus in one sense and yet so far away from him. Just being around Jesus, just being connected to the community of Jesus in the church, just kind of being open-minded and being warm to him, and maybe thinking he's okay, it is just not enough. You've got to be careful not to close your heart to Jesus, to harden your conscience to him over and over, to embrace compromise again and again, doing what you know is disobedient to him. Never coming and repenting, never coming humbly before him you think just one more drink and then I'll stop or, or just one more month in this relationship and then I'll move on or we say things like little white lies never hurt anybody did they really or illegal downloads that a victimless crime or we're engaged so we're basically married we might as well sleep together there's no real problem with that no harm done and again and again we harden our hearts we compromise we pull away We need to be warned, we need to be careful that we don't end up like Judas. Listen, if, this, if that cuts for you, if that describes you in some way, that's what I want you to do. I want you to talk to a friend today. Probably someone in your community group, maybe your community group leader or leaders. Ask for prayer. Confess your sins. Be honest. Don't cover up. If you want to come and see me, I'd love to chat with you and talk about that. Receive grace. Be helped to repent. Don't harden your heart to Jesus. Don't resist the work of your spirit. You know right now the spirit is bringing conviction to your heart. You know. I've sat there and had someone say this to me. And I know when it's coming. You need to act on that today. Don't harden your heart. Here's the third one. We need to see this is the hot... Heart. And this is the woman, isn't it? At the heart of the story, really. This unnamed woman who, in loving devotion, comes to Jesus. And she comes in this act of extravagant worship around this meal table. She kind of, she holds nothing back as she comes. And she brings, we read, this most expensive perfume. And honours Jesus by pouring it over his head. We're told that the perfume is about a year's wages. We're talking something like 25 grand a bottle of perfume. Okay? One little bottle of perfume, 25 grand. Gone in about 60 seconds. She's just blown it. It's probably got sentimental value to her as well. She she probably hasn't earned the money to buy it. It's probably like this family heirloom that's been passed down. So it's got this real sense of uh, of sentimentality. Uh, But this lady is all in, and she holds nothing back. She breaks the little bottle. It's it's broken, it's done with, and it's all poured out. Uh, And you can imagine, can't you, if you were in that room, kind of the sweet aroma of this beautiful perfume fills the air. This costly sacrifice that is flowing out from her heart. This heart that is red hot for Jesus, that is fervent in devotion. This heart of deep love. This is a, a very costly sacrifice. This this took some pain for her, right? I mean, twenty-five grand. There's a lot you could do with that. I'm thinking, you know, deposit on a house. That's a nice car. That's a nice car, isn't it? Or or maybe a uni course fees. Or you could think of other things. But no, it was her willing and her delighted choice uh, choice to pour it out, to pour it out in worship of Jesus actually we see, see in verse 8 that all of this is an, in anticipation of his death and we don't really know whether she realises it or not but Jesus says this is for my burial and so this is a beautiful thing But this unnamed woman who's kind of a bit of an outsider has come and done very different to Judas isn't it see her actions show what has got hold of her heart we're left in no doubt And, you know, you might think it's strange for us to talk about loving Jesus. And maybe some might think it's particularly strange for men. And and it's not very masculine to talk about love in that kind of way, is it? You know, and if Jesus is just some kind of ordinary guy, some Joe Bloggs, then it is strange. If he's just some misunderstood dead guy, then yeah, it's very strange. If he's just another religious teacher, then yeah, it is pretty strange. But it's not strange to talk about this kind of all-in love for Jesus if he is the God who loved us and the God who gave himself for us. See, this is connected to Jesus' death. It's connected to his upcoming burial. And what this woman shows us is that you cannot give too much to Jesus. You cannot give too much for Jesus. After all, what do you have that he hasn't already given to you and entrusted to you? Holding nothing back from him is a totally appropriate response because of who he is and of what he has done. That he himself held nothing back, not even his life, for you or from you. It's a totally appropriate response. But you see, we're in a culture, aren't we, that is obsessed with maximizing our comfort and minimizing our suffering. As you think, you can never see one of us blowing that kind of money on Jesus. You might think it would be nice to have that kind of money. But I wonder if we would blow it on him if we had it. We need to remember what Jesus has warned already in Mark's gospel in chapter 8. He says this, What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? You see, we can have everything, and yet we can have Nothing. Uh, I wonder if you saw uh, this guy recently. He was kind of around the news a month or two ago. He's um, a guy called uh, John Allen Chow, I think, a 26-year-old American. Uh, and he made their news headlines because he went, he found out where the world's most remote tribe is. And it's in a place, I think, in Indonesia or the Philippines, that kind of part of the world, called uh, North Sentinel. And he went there to tell them about Jesus. Uh, but when he went there to tell them about Jesus, uh, they killed him and he died. And uh, he was in the news, there was all sorts of, it was quite controversial, people had lots of different opinions about whether he should have been doing that, and, and what happened, and whatever else. But listen, there is something entirely appropriate, whatever you think about that whole situation, in having such a love for Jesus, that you're not going to hold anything back. He he knew, that there's, he wrote a diary and stuff, he spoke to people, he knew the risks of him going. And he wasn't willing to hold it back. I think, at least in part, because of his love for Jesus. Uh, Another guy, actually, 70 odd years ago, did exactly uh, a very similar thing, a guy called Jim Elliot in 1956. He went to a tribe in Ecuador to tell them about Jesus, and they killed him. Again, as a young guy, I think he was in his 20s. Jim Elliot said this, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You see, it is never, ever, ever a waste when you experience pain. When you experience loss of something. When you experience hardship and difficulty because of your love for Jesus. Stuff that you could avoid. Those guys could have avoided getting killed quite easily. But because of a love for Jesus, you experience pain and heartache and suffering and difficulty. Because of the love that you have for him overflows into your lifestyle. That is never a waste. Because you're investing all you have in stuff that you cannot lose. You know, when you can't afford stuff that your friends and your colleagues can afford because you've given so much money away to build God's kingdom. Or those hours that you're never going to get back over the weekend or on your weeknights because you've given away them serving those in need around you, or because of the love of Jesus just flowing out of your heart. And those are hours that are lost, and yet they are not wasted. Or maybe it's that lifestyle that that you are on for and that you dreamed of, and that everyone in your culture and your family says you should have. But that's gone. Because the love of Jesus has drawn you to inner city Birmingham. To see God's kingdom grow here. See, none of that is a waste. None of it can be a waste with Jesus. Jesus here honours this woman. Do you notice how he defends her with zeal? Against these guys? He delights in her worship. and you know what he honours and he delights? In the worship and the love and the sacrifice of those who who give up things out of love for him he delights in us when we do that and if his promises are true that he really is gain and that we can't all lose what we have in him if his promises are true that there really is a life to come and it is if it really is true that he's got an eternal inheritance prepared that's prepared for those who are his then we can't lose when we give up all out of love for him are you like this? This is about self-assessment today. Are you like this woman? Like these guys? All out for Jesus, full of love? Maybe you are. Maybe you are. But I, I guess, I guess, and I know for some of you this is definitely true, you're more like me. And this is maybe more like you. You're battling with half-heartedness on a daily basis. Maybe there's moments of, of kind of Hot heart, but very often it's half-hearted. You see, there is such such a pressure on us, isn't there, in, in, in our culture at the moment, to have this kind of respectable religion, to be moderate. Don't take it too seriously. Yeah, you can be Christian and do church, but don't be too serious about it. A lot of your families say that to you. My family say things like that to me at times. We're to have this kind of measured discipleship. We're not too keen in British culture, are we, on these kind of outrageous kind of overflows of, uh, of love and that kind of stuff. We're a bit, we are want to be a bit more British about it and keep things together. And, and we're a bit cynical, very cynical. <laughs> Those of you from other countries, bear with us. <laughs> we're a work in progress here. I mean, how often do you feel patronized for being serious about your faith? It's kind of passive-aggressive patronizing, isn't it? I hear it all the time. Let's, let's look at verses 4 and 5. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? Could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. You see, these people, they sound impressive, they sound wise, they sound sensible, they even sound religious. They've got a point. There's a lot of money being wasted in one sense here. They're thinking of all the good that could be done with it. How many people could be helped out of poverty? That's a deposit for a church building or or a drug rehab program being started or, or employing a gospel worker for a year. That's a lot of good stuff. And it really gets at them. And so they're indignant and they rebuke her harshly. This story is retold by a couple of other Bible writers and Matthew tells us that these people shouting the woman down are Jesus' disciples. And John tells us that Judas is the one who's leading the charge. Do you know what's happening here? These disciples, these friends of Jesus are being more influenced by Judas than Jesus. And so they're being led astray and they're giving this woman a hard time for her love and passion for Jesus. These are the disciples being shrewd and careful and calculated. calculated but it's not love for Jesus that's firing their hearts. And that's why Jesus does defend this woman with zeal and, and he descends, d- defends her from their cynicism and from their snarky critiques and their pious religion. He says, No, she has done a beautiful thing. She did what she could and she will be remembered. You see, she gets the right value on Jesus. She knows that nothing is too great for him. Whereas for the disciples, they're up for a bit of Jesus mixed in with life as they like it. They've got their hearts, if you like, in a few different places. Jesus has got a bit of my heart, but also I've got got all this other stuff going on. I, I just want to be clear, though. This is not Jesus saying uh, that the, the, the needs of the poor do not matter or his followers should not care about meeting uh, the needs of the poor. Now, actually, the, the part of the Bible that he quotes when he says that you will always have the poor with you is it, part of the Bible, Deuteronomy 15. And in that very text, God is commanding his people to be concerned with and to relieve the needs of the poor because they will always be with you. So you need to go on doing that. But Jesus is saying, in this Passover week, with all that's going on here and now, at this time, there is something greater happening. There's something more significant going down, and this woman has got hold of it in her heart by faith, (laughs) better than the others. And maybe she doesn't even really know the extent to which she's got hold of it, but she has. See, most of us are drawn to being moderate. Our culture upholds it as a virtue and kind of presses us into this moderate squeeze and let's face it our hearts drift along towards that way as well going cold, being cool and indifferent we don't want to take Jesus too seriously we don't want to look too crazy to other people and so we become maybe spiritually apathetic we just kind of simmer down spiritually spiritually we develop this measured, respectable, moderate Christianity. It's Christianity that, that doesn't make us stick out too much in our workplace. We just kind of want to just blend in, be seen as a nice person, and, that, and that's good enough. Or, or this Christianity doesn't want to make, make us feel too different from our friends around us, or, or doesn't want to take too many risks for Jesus. I wonder... If this morning you're thinking, if you've just lost your first love, if that's you, you just kind of become a bit cool spiritually. And this is like Christianity on wartime rations. It's not this abundant, overflowing feast, it's, it's giving Jesus these little rations of our heart. Yeah, Jesus, you can have this little bit, but no more than that. I, I, I want to keep that for myself or we'll give that elsewhere. I want to keep this precious stuff. But this woman shows us, doesn't she, that, that Christianity, the true following of Jesus, is this lavish, this overflowing, this abundant thing that happens. I'm not going to lie, I've been unsettled this week by this. I've been unsettled by how indifferent and how cool my heart becomes to Jesus. If I was in this scene, I would be, I think, probably with these disciples. Kind of giving a bit to Jesus, but actually criticizing this woman who's all in for him. She's a bit foolish. That's a bit embarrassing. We could have used that money, strategy Jesus, we could have used that money better. And you know what? Jesus rightly rebukes that attitude. Attitude. And he will not let it prevail over those who have got hearts that are hot for him and are all in for him. And people whose lives are just overflowing with love for him. Our purpose is, as a church is that we're all about helping people love Jesus more and more. And you see, at least today, how central that is to everything. Everything. This kind of speaks into why that is our very purpose. And listen, we're not talking about some soppy, some kind of sentimental kind of love. But we're talking about how how, how a love that kind of shapes how we live and how we speak and and where we go and what we do and how we feel and how we spend our money. Uh, It's the kind of love that leads people to lay down their lives for other people. I'm sure we've got growth to go in our love for Jesus. Jesus. Uh, And maybe you're sitting there and you're feeling discontent in your love for him this morning. Maybe you're feeling convicted and and compelled and and even regretful and sad. Listen, if that's you, I want to say be encouraged. See, the mark of a true follower of Jesus isn't that we've attained this kind of perfect, full, hot all the time love for him and, and just this life that is just all out for him. No, it's a true follower of Jesus that longs for that and aspires to that and is discontent when they don't see that and wants to change. So you don't need to be condemned. You can be encouraged. And that's because we see how Jesus responds to all of these different heart types. Do you know what he does? He loves us and he goes to the cross to buy our forgiveness. He loves us and he goes to the cross to offer us forgiveness. As a matter of fact, Luke records that when Jesus was dying on the cross, he cried out as people insulted him, as they hated on him. One of the things that Jesus cried out as he died, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. You see, Jesus goes to the cross willingly and deliberately for those who are hostile, for those who are hard-hearted, for those who are half-hearted. In, in, in Mark 14 here, it looks like stuff is spiraling out of control as the, kind of the plot thickens and deepens and, and, and Judas goes to betray him uh, and it looks like uh, Jesus is going to be this innocent victim and, and, and he's about to fall prey to these more powerful forces. But even as they scheme and as they plot and as they strike deals in dark corners and have him killed. Verse 8, he speaks with clarity yet again that he is going to die. He's done it quite a lot in Mark already. Jesus knows it is coming. He is walking towards it. This is all part of his preparation. Even this very scene. You see, Jesus is going to the cross to give up his all, to give his very life. And he's doing that to rescue lost people who are far away from God, the God who has made them. Who have turned away from him and rejected him. And he's doing that to give us new hearts that love him. New hearts that overflow with joy and love and life in him. I guess the question as we close is how should we respond? What should the posture and the attitude of our heart be to him who loved us and gave his own life for us? We're about to sing this. With the whole realm of nature mine, it were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life. My all, let's stand and sing together.